Welcome to The Telegram. I'm Tim Stanley. Afghanistan is not going to be like Surrey. That was the warning of the British Army as our troops prepared to hand over control of Helmand province to America in advance of elections due to start this weekend. We ask, is that low ambition good enough for an invasion that has so far cost 448 British soldiers' lives? British troops are supposed to be out of Afghanistan entirely by the end of the year, bringing to a close an operation that started 13 years ago. In this discussion, we're going to be asking, what were we there for? And was it worth it? I'll be talking about this with Rory Stewart, an MP and diplomatic expert who famously walked across Afghanistan, and with Colin Freeman, the chief foreign correspondent for the Sunday Telegraph, who has spent a great deal of time in the country. But first, I'm going to talk with Rob Crilly, Pakistan and Afghanistan correspondent of The Telegraph, who speaks to us directly from Pakistan. Rob, can you give us an impression of the state of Afghanistan and Helmand as the British leave and the elections begin? Well, it's tempting always to paint a very bleak picture of the Taliban waiting in the wings for international forces uh, to leave and for the British troops to get out of Helmand. Um, But the truth is, once you get outside Kabul, um, there is a degree of security. If you talk to senior British commanders, senior NATO commanders, um, they're saying that um, the Afghan National Army are taking the fight to the Taliban at the moment. And the militant groups are unable to take territory back. Um, they've been unable to cut supply lines, communications, things like that, which if you go back to the Mujahideen days, they were very successfully doing against the Soviets. So th- th- there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a relative um, calm outside um, Kabul. Some, uh, the number of attacks is down 30% on this time last year. However, things are different here in Kabul, where the Taliban, um, in conjunction with other militant groups, has, has been very successful in dominating the headlines with a string of high-profile attacks against foreign targets. They've struck a number of foreign guest houses, uh, guest houses used by by foreigners. Um, The uh, election commission was hit at the weekend. And I just returned to my own hotel to find an armoured car stationed outside. And tensions are running very, very high before um, Saturday's election, which um, many see as a a focal point. The Taliban are really out to try to disrupt uh, the democratic process uh, and do what they can um, to stop people going to the polls. In that case, why are they targeting foreigners rather than Afghanistan citizens? It, it, it's quite simple. Um, attacking foreigners generates headlines. There was an attack on the Serena Hotel here where um, nine people were killed, um, four of them foreigners. They hit a, a Lebanese restaurant um, at, the, at the start of the year, uh, killing some 21 people. But it was the internationals that made the headlines. You know, we've, I think after uh, 12 years, more than 12 years of conflict here, we've all become rather jaded and tired by this war. And the deaths of Afghans here is sadly unreported. But the Taliban are pretty canny with their media strategy. And they know that if they hit uh, foreigners, they're going to generate headlines in a way that they can't do otherwise. And is the goal, therefore, to encourage the West to leave? Or, or is it to actually terrify Afghan voters? I mean, w- w- what is their internal goal with these attacks? It, it, it's, it's both, essentially. Um, they remain um, committed to getting foreigners um, out of Afghanistan. They know the foreign troops are leaving, and are pretty keen for the um, the diplomats, the aid workers, the journalists to follow. Uh, and, and they've been slightly successful in that. A number of aid agencies have, have cut back operations. International observers who are due to monitor the polls here, two, two sets have left, leaving only uh, one group behind. 
Um, and at the same time, uh, it, it is um, trying uh, part of a strategy to show that the Afghan National Army are not in control of this country. If they can't protect the capital, you know, what can they do? So it's all part of trying to create a perception of insecurity. I mean, to a certain extent, this conflict at the moment, I wouldn't say it's a PR battle, but it is a, a war of perceptions, and the Taliban are trying to show uh, that they can act at will in the capital and undermine the local forces. So by doing that, they are suggesting that the local forces can't secure the election, elections. If they can't protect the election commission headquarters in Kabul, then what chance have they got of protecting a local polling station uh, out in the east of the country where, where, where they're particularly strong? Okay. Um, that, that's essentially what they're trying to do. Okay. If these elections go ahead and there is still corruption and there is still violence, do you think that is good enough for Afghanistan? Considering all the many problems that country has, do you think this is all we can really expect of the country? This, I think, is the crucial um, question around these elections. The international community here, the diplomats that you speak to, are desperate for this to be a success. Um, they want to be able to say our troops are going home at a positive moment as Afghanistan uh, marches into the future with democratically uh, elected government and a widely accepted government. So in order to do that, what they seem to be doing is watering down their requirements. In, anywhere else in the world... They might be demanding free and fair elections, but here they've come up with a rather convoluted form of words. They want transparent, inclusive and credible elections. Now, that has angered a number of Afghans, um, one of the presidential candidates that I spoke to in particular, um, who, who see that as, yet again, the West going down the road of, of Afghan good enough. This, this is a policy that has really dominated um, the work of the West here. This is the idea that Afghanistan was in such a state, it doesn't really matter if things here aren't perfect, if they aren't up to the democratic standards we would accept at home, this is good enough for Afghanistan, is the mantra. Now, the optimist would say, well, you know, that's fine. We're, we're moving forward um, step by step. We can't expect change overnight. If this election is a bit better than last time around, last time around, there were 1.3 million disqualified votes, which is an extraordinary number when I think there was something like um, 4.5 million votes cast. That, that election was riddled by fraud, it, it was a mess, and to any decent independent observer were deeply fraudulent. So if these elections are a little bit better, runs the re reasoning, at least Afghanistan is on the, the way to democracy in the future. However, the problem is that in the background, many of the voting choices will be dominated by the old warlords, the Mujahideen leaders who um, fought the Soviets and then fought among themselves for control of Kabul in the 1990s. It's people like General Dostum, or, or, or Professor Sayaf, the man who invited bin Laden to come stay in Afghanistan in the 1990s. They control massive ethnic voting blocs. And in doing so, they can control the outcome of the election. And, and therefore, the argument runs, well, what has really changed? If it's the same old corrupt people in the background, is this an acceptable form of democracy? So, so, so that, those are the sorts of questions that voters here are wrestling with, and the international community is too. And that's exactly what we'll go on to discuss now. Rob Crilly, thank you very, very much. That was Rob Crilly talking to us from Pakistan about the present in Afghanistan. I'm now going to talk to Rory Stewart and Colin Freeman about both the past and the future. Rory Stewart, do you think in terms of the military objectives that were laid out in 2001, the operation has done what it was supposed to do? I think the basic problem is that the military objectives have always been confused and changing. So 
2001 was pretty straightforward. It was supposed to get rid of al-Qaeda. And that was achieved pretty quickly. Al-Qaeda moved into Pakistan. They moved out of Afghanistan by the end of 2001, beginning of 2002. But we then got much more ambitious. People started talking about defeating the Taliban, creating a credible, effective, legitimate Afghan state. And then there were other objectives, counter-narcotics. So I would say, yes, the very narrow objectives that people like Secretary of State Rumsfeld had in 2001, which was throwing al-Qaeda across into Pakistan, we did achieve. But the rest of the stuff, no. Would it have been realistic simply to kick the Taliban out of the country and then leave? Surely that would have allowed them just to return. I mean, isn't, isn't there a logic to saying that having denied them a base of operations, you then got to put a, a working democracy in its place so that it, it remains somewhere that al-Qaeda can't function out of? Well, I guess the problem is that we tend to be very black and white. We tend to assume we either do everything or we do nothing. So we either do what you talk about, which is a working democracy, or we leave. I would have thought the correct answer would have been to have a light, long-term footprint, been much more modest in our objectives, kept a few troops in Kabul, pursued development projects, done the kind of stuff we did in 2002, 3, 4, but never get sucked into this huge surge, this huge nation-building operation. Do you think, in terms of al-Qaeda, denying them that base in Afghanistan has been important to stopping them as a terrorist movement? I mean, attacks have... No attacks at the scale of 9-11 have occurred since. Well, it's definitely helpful not allowing people to have huge training camps in a country. I mean, allowing people to have Quantico-style training camps where you're pumping jihadists through who end up as terrorists elsewhere is, is a disaster. So splintering them, pushing them into places like Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Sudan, is certainly safer than the situation that we had in the late 1990s, where they were able to really consolidate a base. Colin, do you agree with that? Do you think it has been, the one benefit has been the splintering of al-Qaeda? Yes, I would certainly say so. Nobody has been able to plan any operation, anything like as sophisticated as 9-11 since that time in the late 1990s, 2000, 2001. Um, it obviously is not welcome news for the likes of Yemen, uh, for the likes of Somalia, for the likes of Mali and other countries that right. have suffered from an al-Qaeda overspill. But it, it does mean that they are essentially on the run as opposed to enjoying free reign in, in some particular place. Do you think that uh, Rory has introduced this idea of the, the ambitions and the objectives changing over time? Do you think part of the reason why we're in Hellman is because of that process, that there was an evolution in objectives uh, that ended up inviting us to do far more than we initially thought we'd be doing in 2001. There does clearly seem to have been, I remember in around late 2005, uh, Tony Blair suddenly announcing that Britain was going to send several thousand troops down to Helmand province, which is the spiritual home of the Taliban, um, partly to, to deal with the, the Taliban threat there, although that was not particularly big at the time. There was a feeling it might be resurgent, but it certainly wasn't anything like the level it is now, uh, but also primarily to um, deal with the, the drug problem. It's the main hub of all opium production for most of the heroin that comes into Europe. Um, the idea would, would be that you killed two birds with one stone. Uh, the alternative way of looking at it was that you were taking on an extremely an extremely difficult problem, not only the Taliban in their home turf, but also the interests of the drug lords, whose interests were intertwined with those of the Taliban. 
Um, it was uh, at the time ministers were pretty glib about it. They said, "Oh yeah, we'll get we'll get this sorted in ten years' time. We'll eradicate heroin um, production in this area. Never mind all the issues about demand and supply and so on." Um, I remember asking a minister, Are you, "Do you really think that's possible? You've seen how difficult it is to eradicate, say, cocaine production in Colombia." And his attitude was that, you know, I was being unnecessarily pessimistic and being a typical scoffing journalist. Um, and we saw, though, about three years, four years later, um, the, 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 the attempts to eradicate opium production were completely abandoned because it was seen that it was alienating local farmers and driving them further into the arms of the Taliban. And you, you do have to ask yourself, what exactly was the point of sending all those people down there? Right. Why Why is it so particularly difficult to dislodge uh, drug traffickers as it has been in Colombia, as it has been in Afghanistan? Like, because like in any of these places, money is what makes the world go round. Right. And if there's money there, then there will be people who will not be happy uh, if you try and stop that, that production taking place. Right. Rory, do you think that uh, the attack on drug production is part of an attempt to explain to the Western public why we're in Afghanistan? Is, is that part of the problem, that an operation took place and then governments had to find justifications for it after the fact? I, I certainly think that there was a real attempt to manufacture more and more justifications and try to find appealing ways of describing what we were doing. The reality is, I feel, that we were sucked into this agenda. People underestimated how difficult it was going to be to operate in places like Helmand. And once things started to go wrong, we were unable to admit failure. We were unable to say this has failed, and we were unable to get the troops out. So we began emphasizing every justification we could to explain why on earth we went from 3,000 to 5,000 to 7,000 to 9,000 to ultimately 32,000 British and American forces in a province which contained about 4% of the population of Afghanistan and about 6% of its land mass. So that's when people start saying, this is an existential threat to global security. All the drugs on the streets in Manchester come out of Helmand. If Afghanistan falls, Pakistan will fall, mad mullahs will get their hands on nuclear weapons. There was a whole industry which essentially was trying to justify the fact that the US government and its allies were spending over 100 billion US dollars a year in Afghanistan and understandably voters wanted to know why. Right, right. Do you think, as someone who knows the country and the culture well, do you think that the desire to build a democracy there therefore was unrealistic or even a cynical add-on? Uh, do, do you think it was it was uh, not only hopeless but also something that the West kind of knew that it couldn't achieve but wanted to do it as a way of justific justifying the operation? It, it's very difficult to understand what was going on in the minds of Western leaders. I, I, I remember trying to understand this in 2007-8. I mean, clearly what they were trying to do seemed to most people who weren't involved in these operations impossible. It was very easy to stand up and say, we're going to create the rule of law, we're going to create security, we're going to create good governance. But Afghanistan is a very, very poor country, splintered into 20,000 villages. Our understanding of Afghan culture and language is very, very limited. People were serving very short tours. It simply wasn't plausible that we could achieve any of these things. So were they cynical? In other words, were they being dishonest or were they naive? Or was it simply that actually something about the structures of the West mean that people make these comments about governance and rule of law without really asking themselves what relationship these phrases have to anything that's really going on on the ground in a country like Afghanistan. Colin, how would you compare the aspiration for building democracy in Afghanistan to that in Iraq? 
Well, I would say they were two pretty different kettles of fish, really. In Iraq, you had a, a relatively industrialized society, um, uh, one where there was pretty high, you know, more or less 100% literacy rates, some poverty, but not an awful lot, and potentially an awful lot of oil wealth there, just unwaiting to be locked. In, in Afghanistan, you have very low literacy rates, not a great deal of, of natural resources to make the country wealthy. Um, my view is that Iraq was a place that had gone wrong under a particular dictator who'd served in a, in a particular time, particularly turbulent time, that with a, with a few nudges in the right direction, there was a chance um, that, you know, a, democ a democratic society could be nurtured there. I think if you, if you apply that model to someone like Helmand, it's very different. There's no history of really of democracy there. Um, it's a, essentially a tribal society, a very martial, warlike society. Um, you know, you were trying to lay on a model that, you know, where, where the, the preconditions were not really in existence beforehand. What do you think is the most important thing when it comes to building a democracy with regard to security in the future? Uh, what matters more? Well, you, you can talk about education, you can talk about literacy and, all, and, and security and all these things are, of course, important. What tends to strike me when I go to countries like that, though Iraq or Afghanistan or other places, is when you actually ask people who you're going to vote for. And they don't tend to be making decisions based on a manifesto or anything like that. It's usually, well, I'll vote for this party because my cousin drives, is a driver for, you know, one of the politicians who's in it or because, you know, this is the party of my particular religion, be it Shiism or whatever. Um, and I've been told that I may, you know, if if I don't vote for it, I will go to hell. I'm 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 paraphrasing some of the some of what some of the comments that I've been told mm -hmm. by people in those in those areas. But that the, when you, when you hear those kind of things, you think, my God, you know, democracy as seen by some people in these countries is not what we see it is. Um, it's it's not the informed contest of ideas that we would we would like to think it is i'm not of course suggesting remotely that everybody in afghanistan or everybody in in iraq votes along those sort of lines but the fact that some do um does make you give you um sort of course food for thought sometimes rory uh, is it culturally relativist or even orientalist or even a little bit racist to say that some societies simply aren't ready for what we enjoy in the west Definitely can be, can be all those things, can be a racist thing to say that. Um, I, I prefer to say that these countries, a country like Afghanistan, is it's nothing to do with something to do with the Afghan race. It's simply that you're looking at a country where very few people can read and write, where people are often living in very isolated villages. You know, I walk through places that in the winter are six days walk from the nearest road. And where people often have other kinds of priorities. So I guess democracy is a long process. But I'd also say that there's no alternative, that I've never been to a country where people say, except for the elite, I've never heard normal people say, oh, we'd ra much rather live under a dictatorship. They only get to that stage when security's got so bad. But if you try to ask people what kind of system of government you want, do you want a say in who governs you? Do you want to be tortured in your house? These things are pretty universal. People do want to say in who governs them. People do want basic protection of their human rights. And it's very difficult to imagine any system for all its flaws. I mean, there are many problems with democracy, even in Britain. But it's very difficult for me to believe that there's some alternative system of government that we should go around 
But isn't there a fundamental tension when it comes down to who they choose to fill those elected seats? Uh, the, the West imagines that democracy will always result in the elevation of a bourgeois, liberal, secular kind of government, whereas those countries perhaps would vote for something different that sure. we, we may even say in some ways delegitimizes the democratic process because it puts those people in power. Sure. So we're going through elections now in Afghanistan, about to go through elections in Iraq. What are we really looking at there? We're looking at um, situations in which, broadly speaking, in a rough and ready sense, you get majority representation uh, with a lot of corruption, a lot of stolen votes, a lot of intimidation. But do you get all the other things that people imagine by democracy in France or Holland? Absolutely not. And it doesn't mean that you get protection of minority rights. It doesn't mean that you get a vibrant civil society. It doesn't mean that you get the rule of law. What you basically get is people voting. And in countries like Iraq, people vote. In Afghanistan, people will vote, but a lot of votes will be stolen. But we need to, I think, get out of these big buzzwords like democracy and just describe what's happening. Mm -hmm. What's happening is probably about a quarter of the Afghan population, I'm guessing, will turn up and cast some kind of ballot. Colin Freeman, finally, what is happening, according to the front of Time magazine, is the return of the Taliban. Uh, do you think that's true? And do you think they can ever play a, a part in, in, in a fair and free Afghan society? They, they are there. Um, they're stronger now, certainly, than they were a decade ago, um, uh, when they were pretty much on the back foot after uh, the 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 post 9/11 invasion of of Afghanistan, um, th they represent a certain strand in Afghan society of highly conservative people, um, and that exists anywhere you go in Afghanistan. You will find those sort of people. Um, uh, it, it is it, it is certainly possible that they will continue to play a role. Yes. And Rory, do you think there's a there will be a role for the Taliban in a future Afghanistan society? The Taliban are are a force. They're not going away. Are they likely to be able to take a city like Kabul, capture a city like Kabul? I don't think so at the moment. Are they likely to be defeated by the Afghan government? No. They're likely to remain as a presence in the South and East for some time to come. So ideally, what one wants is a kind of political settlement where the Afghan government, the Taliban, come to some kind of understanding. But that seems unlikely. It doesn't seem as though either side really wants to talk. So looking forward in this unbelievably unpredictable country, uh, we can at least be certain that the Taliban are going to be there and that they're going to be a serious problem for some time to come. And for the sake of future stability, the West may have to cut a deal with the very people it went to war with. Well, actually, the West has lost its chance, basically, to do that. The West's role now in Afghanistan is getting smaller and smaller. The Taliban, if they wanted to cut a deal, would now presumably wish to negotiate with the Kabul government or with the neighbours, Pakistan, Iran. But the time when the United States can dictate the terms to the Taliban, I'm afraid, is probably fading. Roy Stewart and Colin Freeman, thank you both very much. For more opinion and commentary, you can find us at telegraph.co.uk.